Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Our topic for today is the physiology of breathing. In our last episode, we focused specifically on nasal versus mouth breathing, and that was a deep dive into one specific aspect of breathing. For today, we want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of breathing in general. So we'll talk about things like what breathing is, how it works from a physiological standpoint, and how the science of breathing can inform us in a yoga context, both in the style of breath as we move through our practice, as well as in specific pranayama techniques. We will also discuss some common myths and misunderstandings around the breath in the yoga world. We have a special guest for today's episode, and that guest is Joe Miller. Joe has been teaching yoga since 2000, he has a master's degree in applied physiology from Columbia University. He teaches anatomy and physiology for yoga teachers and yoga teacher trainings nationally and worldwide. He is also a guild certified Feldenkrais practitioner, a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And he also teaches gentle somatics-based classes on Jenny's online yoga class library. So welcome, Joe, to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yay! We are so happy to have you here, too. And Travis and I have both like tuned into your work for for a long time now, and I just I just know what a fantastic teacher you are and... Anytime that I like post something on social media that features you, like a new class from you in my library, always people comment and they're just like, oh my gosh, Joe taught in my teacher training and I learned so much from him and I'm so glad to see that he's teaching for your library. And so I feel like you're much revered in the yoga world and uh, you just you just bring a lot of excellent content and education about the body for those of us who are interested. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess the first question that we were wondering was, we know that you practice yoga for, and taught yoga for quite a long time. Uh, and at one point, you went to grad school to study physiology, which is partly how you're so knowledgeable about, about the topic. So just wondering kind of like, what was that connection for you between like, what, what inspired you to decide to go back and study physiology at the grad school level? And was their connection to your yoga practice, like did that help inspire that or, or not? Okay, sure. I mean, I guess I could go maybe back even a little bit further and just talk a little bit about kind of my history with yoga. And so yeah. I, um, uh, uh, I'm a pretty skinny guy uh, and always have been. Uh, and when I was when I was young, um, in my twenties, I uh, I wanted to bulk up and get a little bit bigger and gain some mm -hmm. weight. So, um, so I started going to the gym. I went to the Y, 
and uh, started doing some weight training. And, um, and this was also around a time in my life when I just got more interested in being healthier. And so I started, you know, mm -hmm. running and other forms of exercise. And, uh, and in the gym, I found yoga classes, which at that time was a long time ago, were pretty slow. The focus was on relaxation. You do a pose, you do Shavasana, you do another pose. And, and it, I liked it because I, I liked the relaxation aspect. And I, and I was interested also in you know, kind of improving my flexibility, but it wasn't my primary thing. I was, I was kind of more interested at that point, really, in, in weight training. And, you know, back in those days, I think kind of the approach to weight training was more or less a sort of bodybuilding approach. A lot mm -hmm. of Nautilus machines, those were big at the time and, and um, you know, kind of more isolation type exercises. So uh, anyway, eventually I kind of got more interested in pursuing yoga. I got interested. I started reading more about the philosophy and was reading a lot of Alan Watts at a certain point and kind of going through a period in my life when I was also, I sort of felt like I, I needed something because my things weren't going well. So, mm -hmm. so I got more interested in, in practicing yoga. And, it, and around that time, that's when I discovered vinyasa. And I love vinyasa. And it was kind of interesting to me to practice things like handstands or wheel or something like that. And yeah. I thought of myself as being very strong because I'd been working out. And, uh, and what I found was I wasn't really able to do these things like, oh, I can't like lift on the wheel. I can't do a handstand. And that was kind of at that point, I think I didn't really realize how much strength is skill related. Um, mm. And so, mm -hmm. so that kind of inspired me. It was like an interesting challenge to me to come. And I got sort of more interested in practicing vinyasa for maybe the next 10 or 15 years was pretty much my only practice was just doing vinyasa. Um, right. Like I you stopped like weight training and then. Yeah, I pretty much wasn't doing anything else. Um, I got into Ashtanga for a while. And mm -hmm. um, and then at a certain point, I think this is probably a common, you know, thing that a lot of people have found in yoga practices. My body started feeling a little bit cranky. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I found a teacher, a yoga teacher named Glenn Black, who um, had an Iyengar background. But Glenn would bring in things like kettlebells and medicine balls. And he would just do all this crazy things. And it really started to start to expand my idea of what yoga practice could be and what movement could be. Um, yeah. And I got more interested then in like strength training because I was like, oh yeah, I, you know, I realized, oh, now I'm missing that part of that, the kind of the fitness equation. So I got more interested in that. And I started doing more research and looking into trying to understand what was going on in the body with weight training and exercise. And discovered that there was such a thing as exercise physiology, which I, I didn't know. Uh, I had no idea there was any kind of exercise science or anything. Um, so I got kind of more interested in that and, and also started to realize that in many ways, the kind of yoga world was very insular and kind of cut off from the sort of the wider world of exercise physiology, um, mm -hmm. that yoga was kind of this, this, sort of very insular practice that didn't really, you know, there wasn't much feedback either way. And yeah. so I got really interested in like, I want to know more about how yoga works then, because I was starting to read a little bit about exercise physiology. Yeah. And I thought, I want to learn more. Um, I had been teaching uh, teacher trainings and teaching anatomy at that point. And I wanted to, um, you know, also be able to understand more what was going on in the body from that standpoint too. So I thought, let me 
let me go to school. So I, I, you know, I just, I got curious. I wanted to know more. Um, and I wanted particularly to be able to understand kind of how yoga fit into this picture of what I was learning. Yeah. Um, and what I found was there was really not a tremendous amount of research about yoga, actually. Um, right. There's been some, but, um, but not a huge amount. Yeah. Um, and I, and so my thesis project in grad school was um, I did a project about the effects of pranayama practice. So I did you a whole, did? Yeah, like a literature review on pranayama. Oh, and cool. so, but I would say, you know, primarily I think what you learn in grad school is how to read research um, and how mm-hmm. to read it critically. And, mm-hmm. um, and also then realizing at that point that there was, that a lot of the research about yoga was not necessarily the highest quality. Yes. Um, so anyway, so that was how I wound up kind of winding up in graduate school. And then it, around that time, you know, as I, I said, I kind of started to expand my repertoire of what I was interested in in terms of movement and understanding movement. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, and, and just in case, I'm sure most of our listeners know, but uh, we are going to define this anyway. But just in case anyone doesn't know, when you say you did your, you said it was your master's thesis on pranayama? Yeah. 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 So just pranayama is uh, like breath or quote, life force control. That's like what that means, just in case anyone didn't know, um, which yeah. just further sits you or places you in a position to like know a lot about, to know a lot about breathing, especially when it comes to yoga. Uh, but what you just explained actually brought up a, a question for me, which is that was like, it sounds like you had been teaching like anatomy in yoga teacher trainings for a while mm-hmm. before yes. you went to grad school to learn physiology. And I think that just brings up a, an interesting distinction that I wonder if some of our uh, audience may or may not know that distinction. I remember when I didn't really, but like to, anatomy isn't necessarily the same thing as physiology, right? Like I think sometimes no. people kind of blend them or just think, oh, I know about anatomy. I know the whole body then. Like, could you tell us? taught together. No, That's well, right. anatomy, yeah, it's right. That's like, if you take a course in college, it's usually anatomy and physiology. Um, yeah. And they certainly are, they certainly are related, but no, anatomy is the study of the structure of the body. Right. So like what's there, what's it called? Where is it? What's it next to? Um, yeah. Physiology is the study of function. So physiology is about kind of how the body works. And typically in physiology, you're going to have an approach that's more based um, at a cellular level as right. opposed to anatomy at a kind of a, you know, what we might call a gross level, sort of, you know, what you can see without a microscope. So physiology tends to focus a lot on kind of cellular processes and how that affects the functioning of the body. Thank you for explaining that distinction. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for us to to think about and consider as we have this conversation today too. Um, and another question that came up for me in hearing you speak just now was also that you mentioned that in your experience, and I definitely would admit in my experience as well, the yoga world can be like an in, kind of an insular world where it's just, it's kind of maybe like a bubble and yoga teacher trainings, you know, to teach yoga teachers who then go on to teach yoga teachers. And there isn't, there, there hasn't really been uh, woven into that process, like a stepping out of the yoga world to learn about things like exercise science and exercise physiology. And um, a few years ago, I actually, actually Travis and I, uh, we designed, we interviewed you, Joe, we interviewed you for my blog and we asked you a bunch of great questions as just someone who has really been really immersed in the yoga world for 
really a matter of decades. So like for like a long time. So you've had the opportunity to see things change. And I was reviewing that interview in preparation for our episode. And I noticed you said in there that you had definitely experienced the yoga world as quite insular, but that you did kind of feel like within the past several years, you feel like that's starting to change and there's becoming a little more of an emphasis on people seeing the value in teaching yoga with like science informing their teaching. So I'm just wondering, do you agree? I mean, do you still agree with that? Because you said that a few years ago. And uh, if so, like, what's an, what's an example of how you've seen that change? Um, I do see that. I mean, well, one example I would say is going to, is this podcast, um, Yay. And, um, you know, and, um, you know, and, and your, your Instagram posts, and there's a number of other people I follow who are kind of more interested in an evidence-based approach to understanding mm-hmm. yoga and, and understanding a little bit more from the perspective of kind of exercise science and understanding, you know, what, what are the effects of exercise and how, and that exercise is really primarily about kind of um, signaling your body to make adaptations, yeah. Um, which is, I, I think, yeah. a perspective that certainly when I first started practicing yoga, I think was not really understood. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I see. So I, I see kind of more people being interested in that kind of that evidence-based view of of um, of yoga. Yeah. I still think yoga is a pretty it's still fairly insular, I think. I guess it's, it's changing slowly, I guess. <laughs> That's kind of my experience too. I mean, I guess we, we all can um, kind of be surrounded by our own echo chambers. And so depending on like, who you follow on social media, you might like get an impression that um, a more evidence-based approach is like growing in popularity. And I think it is, but I think you could also take a step back and realize the yoga world is quite large. And I, I regularly come across, yeah, like kind of corners of the yoga world where it seems like there's not really an interest in that. So so I think you're right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I feel like um, sometimes, sometimes people feel, and to me, I feel like this is a super kind of a superficial uh, or oversimplified um, perspective, but I sometimes hear people say that like bringing science to yoga somehow, or, or thinking of yoga in terms of like what exercise science might offer people sometimes say that that like uh, devalues yoga or that's like just less than, you know, yoga is sacred and exercises. I don't know, like materialistic or so, like, it's like these oversimplified dichotomies. Um, but I personally have found that like learning more about science and, and taking a, an evidence-based approach to yoga has honestly made me love and appreciate yoga a lot more. Like it's actually made it more valuable for me because I kind of understand more about like, like you said, adaptation, that's like a huge thing to point out. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, if you, if you, if you think about what kind of traditionally, what is the yoga practice about? It's about looking at the way that you see the world and, mm-hmm. and becoming aware of ways in which you might be misperceiving reality, the reality yeah. of your own um, experience and the reality of your kind of that you you start to discover through the practice that you know that you have certain kind of habits around how you how you see the world um, and yeah. they don't necessarily align with reality um, and mm-hmm. so I think the yoga practice is really about developing a more kind of clear understanding of who we are um, as human beings so that we can have more clarity in our perceptions of 
of the situations that we have in our lives so that we can make better choices. And so from that standpoint, I think having a more um, kind of accurate view of how the body is working yeah. is, is supportive of that. Um, you know, I mean, yes, I, I think traditionally the yoga practice was more interested in kind of seeing ways in which we might be misperceiving um, the world in terms of our kind of our relationships with others or our relationship with ourselves. But, but, but I think if we can have more accuracy in our sense of relationship with our body, I think that's a good thing. And that's, that's, to me, that seems well aligned with the basic principles of yoga. I love how you put it that way. Yeah, that is so true. And I, I fully agree that in my experience, like a, a main goal of a yoga practice is like that sense of self-knowledge, self-understanding, self-awareness. And I feel like that's very much enhanced when we like have this working understanding of literally how our bodies work. Because ultimately all those quote layers or levels of the, bo of the body aren't separate anyway. So um, you're never really just working with just the physical body. That's what sometimes no. you hear, you know, those comments like it, that's just a physical approach, you know, and then they want to disregard it or something. This is at least my, my experience. No, I think, I think your mind and body are, I mean, they're the same thing, you know, ultimately. They are, uh, Joe, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, so yeah. I, I don't really see that as a, a distinction for me, you know, and I think, yeah, so it's that idea of svadhyaya, right? In, in, mm -hmm. in the yoga sutras of self-study is one of the basic principles of yoga. And so, yeah. you know, we, we study our reactions to others. We study our reactions to ourselves, but, um, but I think kind of the more, the more accuracy we can develop in that, in those perceptions, um, the, to me, that seems like that is yoga practice. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. I think so too. That's so well said. Thank you for, for explaining that. And also that helps kind of set a container for the discussion that we're going to be having about the breath today, because, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about the breath in like a physiological context, you know, like the physiology of breathing, uh, but that doesn't somehow make it like less valuable or, you know, like, like less than or, or purely physical. It's like, we, we really want to have a working understanding of how the breath works. The breath is clearly so central to a yoga practice. Um, it's just like, so written into the, the core. So, so with that said, maybe we could turn our attention to um, talking about talking about breathing. And mm -hmm. we know it's a really big topic. And for us to just be like, so tell us how breathing works. is like, that's a really big thing to to ask, but, um, I don't know if maybe you could just think like you were sitting down with like a group of teacher trainees and it was like, um, day one, we're going to, today, we're going to talk about the breath and how breathing works. Could you maybe just give us like a, like an sure. intro chat and we yeah. can ask questions. We'll ask questions. I'm sure as they arise, but just kind of let us know, like, what is, uh, we all know that breathing is the inhale and the exhale. Like we know that, but there's so much more, especially on an actual physiological or, like you said, a cellular level. Like, what is going on with with the breath? 
Right. So, well, oftentimes when I'm teaching this, I'll just introduce by asking, you know, the question, why do we breathe? And of yeah. course, somebody always says to stay alive, which is true. <laughs> um, and uh, so then, but if we dive a little bit more deeply into that, why does, why does breathing help to keep us alive? The function of breathing uh, and the respiratory system is to bring air into the lungs um, so that we can exchange oxygen from the air that we've breathed in with the bloodstream uh, and that um, that oxygen gets circulated to our cells and our cells need oxygen because they use it to produce energy. Uh, and the cells can produce energy for a very short period of time without oxygen, but mm -hmm. um, for long-term kind of sustained functioning, we need oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it takes work to stay alive and, <laughs> uh, and that means it takes energy. So our cells have a constant need for energy and they use the oxygen to, um, as part of a process of metabolizing or breaking down nutrients. So mostly fats and carbohydrates, um, which mostly consists of a long chain of carbons, right? I mean, this, each of those things have different structures, but there are a lot of carbons. And what the cells do is they break apart those molecules, the sugar molecules and fat molecules into individual carbon atoms. By doing that, they release energy. But then we've got mm -hmm. some carbons floating around and we've got to do something with them. So nice. we stick some oxygen onto them and we produce <laughs> CO2, um, which is carbon dioxide, right? So oxygen, by the way, the molecule of oxygen is O2, meaning there's two oxygen atoms in an oxygen molecule. We take mm -hmm. one of those molecules, slap it on a carbon, we get carbon dioxide, and then the carbon dioxide flows back into the bloodstream, flows back to the heart, to the lungs, and there we exchange that carbon dioxide between the blood and the air that we've breathed in. So fundamentally, it's a way of breathing, bringing oxygen to our cells and mm -hmm. getting rid of carbon dioxide, which are both, which oxygen is necessary for what we call cellular respiration or the production of energy by the cells. And then carbon dioxide is the, one of the byproducts. The other one is water. Um, right. So we breathe the carbon dioxide out. Um, so, so that's kind of big picture. Yeah, that's uh, great. The, the organ where that happens is the lungs. Mm -hmm. uh, your lungs are not muscles. Um, they're not <laughs> capable. Think of, that. They're, yeah. they're not capable of moving themselves. Uh, they yeah. need other muscles to, to be able to move them or to change the shape of the lungs. And we can talk a little bit about what, what other muscles do that, but the primary mm -hmm. one is a muscle called the respiratory diaphragm. Mm -hmm. which is a dome-shaped muscle that lies between your, the bottom of your lungs and the top of your abdomen. And, uh, and when you contract your diaphragm, uh, that has the effect of expanding the lungs, of increasing the volume within the lungs. There's a relationship between volume and pressure. So if we increase the volume of the lungs, we create essentially a lowering of air pressure within the lungs. Air flows from higher pressure to lower pressure. So air flows in to fill up the space we've created for it by expanding the lungs. We stop doing that, the diaphragm relaxes, um, the dome um, rises up, the lungs shrink. When the lungs shrink, the volume decreases, the pressure goes up and the air flows out. So we're basically kind of creating a pressure differential between mm -hmm. the internal environment of the lungs and the external atmosphere to bring air in and move air out. Um, but we need muscles to do that. The diaphragm is not the only muscle. There's lots of other muscles that, mm -hmm. that can help out. So you have muscles between your ribs called your intercostal muscles. Um, 
and numerous other muscles that are just kind of generally referred to as accessory muscles, meaning mm -hmm. they, they help the diaphragm. So that's kind of big picture. Um, yes, that's so great. And, and then I guess I would also say that I think it's probably important that we understand how we control that process because oh, yeah. um, your body is uh, very concerned with um, making sure that you have the right amount of oxygen yes. getting to your cells and that you have the right level of carbon dioxide in your bloodstream. So right. one of the things that maybe many of us don't realize is that when carbon dioxide dissolves into the bloodstream, it, we're not, I don't need to go into the chemistry of it, but, <laughs> but essentially what it does is that the more carbon dioxide there is, the more the acidic the environment within the bloodstream would become. Okay. Because, and so your body's very concerned with regulating pH or the, the balance between acidity and alkalinity. Mm -hmm. You have to stay within a fairly narrow range. So, uh, so you have sensors um, in your blood vessels as well as in your brain, in your brain stem, that essentially can sense carbon dioxide and, uh, and, and the level of, and the pH within yeah. your tissues. And as carbon dioxide levels rise, that is the primary stimulus for what we call the respiratory center in the brain to trigger breathing. So we, you might think that we breathe in order to bring oxygen in. And I mean, and we do, of course, but, but the signal oh. that stimulates breathing in your brain is actually the buildup of carbon dioxide. Um, wow, we do also have sensors that, that can, yeah, we have sensors that can sense oxygen as well, but, uh, but those generally don't kick in unless oxygen levels drop pretty low. So um, under Got normal it. circumstances, it's typically carbon dioxide that's actually more the, the signal or the trigger for breathing. Is that why if you were trying to hold your breath, uh, for example, you were driving through a tunnel and competing with your friends to see who could hold their breath for longer, <laughs> it's actually better, not that I do that, that's unsafe. Uh, it's actually better not to take a big breath in and hold it, but it would be better to exhale and then hold so that you don't, you don't have that buildup of carbon dioxide. Um, I don't know that that's going to make much of a difference. I think okay. it's, it's more, it's more just the fact that you're not breathing for a while when you're holding your breath. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that would allow Got the it. carbon dioxide levels to build up. And yeah, but that is why you can't kill yourself by holding your breath. That's right. right? You know, like, all right, I'm going to hold my breath until I turn blue in the face, but, <laughs> but eventually like you're going to breathe. Yeah. Um, so, so we have some yeah. limited, we have some limited ability to control our breathing consciously and voluntarily, mm -hmm. but that is limited because at a certain point, you know, your, your brain, your brain stem is going to be like, what is this fool doing holding his <laughs> breath through this tunnel? Like we got to breathe. And, uh, and it's going to, and it's then going to stimulate, um, trigger that, that impulse to breathe. Um, but we do have some ability to at least consciously to some degree control our breathing. And that's mm -hmm. because, so we have the, the respiratory centers in the brainstem that control breathing. One of the primary inputs, like I said, is pH and carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of other inputs that go, that kind of make their way into those respiratory centers that will, which, which can affect your breathing. And one of those things is input from your cerebral cortex, which is the part of your brain that where kind of conscious thought and volition happen. 
Um, mm-hmm. There's also inputs from centers in your brain that are concerned with emotions. Um, there's there's inputs from uh, your muscles. Um, so uh, right. start to exercise. That's going to tend to stimulate breathing. Um, temperature receptors. So there's lots of different things that can send inputs into the respiratory center that will cause them to modulate your breathing, to speed it up or slow it down or make you breathe more fully or less fully. But the fundamental point is that your body's very good at figuring out how to do that, (laughs) Um, which is great because it means that we don't have to consciously try to control our breath all the time. We can think about other things. Um, Right. And then free up some brain space, you know, conscious brain space for other stuff um, because we know that the brainstem, which is a part of our brain that we don't really have conscious access to, is taking care of that kind of below our level of conscious awareness most right. of the time. I feel like that's a reassuring point to to just kind of know that it's taken care of in the background, like automatically we don't and, and that it um it'll shift the breath based on like the demands in the moment. Like if you're if you're exercising, exactly. you don't have to think, now I need to breathe harder. Your no, body's you just natural, no. right? And no, if you you're don't. just and, yeah. 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 And, and, and interestingly, if you start exercising, your, your breathing rate will actually increase even before. So what, well, I'll just saw so what I was going to say is one of the things that can happen in very vigorous exercise is that there's, you know, I mentioned that your cells can produce energy without using oxygen for short periods of time, right. which, which they do rely on during very vigorous exercise when you don't have, when your circulatory system isn't able to provide your cells with oxygen fast enough to kind of keep up with what we call aerobic respiration, which is your cells using oxygen to produce energy. So your muscles can produce energy for short periods of time without using oxygen. That leads to the production of what's called lactate. Um, Mm -hmm. And as as lactate builds up, that also changes the pH of your bloodstream. um, And that of course becomes a stimulus for breathing. So that's one of the reasons why you start breathing kind of more more vigorously during very uh, strenuous exercise. But what's interesting oh, is, is yeah. that the, your breathing rate actually increases even before that happens. So, um, and then we don't really know exactly why, but probably input from your muscles, um, from sensors in your joints. They're kind of telling your 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 brainstem, "Hey, we're starting to move. You know, right. better start to ramp it up." Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're describing that type of um creating energy without oxygen for kind of short periods of time when maybe there's a lot of intensity required. Is that uh, anaerobic? Is that the term for that? Yeah, that's called anaerobic respiration. Or sometimes you might hear it called anaerobic glycolysis, which means mm-hmm. breakdown of sugar. Um, those, both of those processes are happening all the time. So we're actually, we're producing energy aerobically and anaerobically, you know, all the time. It's not. It's not like. It's not like they're completely separate processes. But but we rely on anaerobic respiration more during very vigorous exercise, just because our circulatory system can't get oxygen fast enough to the muscles. I think that's always hard to understand at first because you think it's either mm-hmm. I'm, I'm either all this one thing or all this other thing, and and we've even. There's an even greater level of depth, right? Because there's fast and slow glycolysis. But anyway, the point being, it's like, no, everything's happening all at the time, but one of them is predominating based on the intensity and the duration of the activity. 
that makes a lot of sense because I feel like we tend to learn about aerobic and anaerobic uh, respiration uh, in ter- in the context of exercise. And we think of like aerobic as being more like, quote, cardio, like running versus anaerobic, which is uh, more like strength training or or sprinting, which is also like like you need a lot of um, that's high intensity and really fast. So it's like these fast, high intensity movements. But I love how you point out that that these two are actually working all the time. Like, I think we we might think of it as just, that's just exercise, but it sounds like it's actually also just how our body operates all day anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could go basis. into like, yeah, I, I, I don't think we want to like go into the whole chemistry of it, but, but yes, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they are happening kind of all the time. I, I was going to actually, I realized the other thing I was going to say was that, that we, I think many people when they're exercising vigorously will kind of have the experience that, um, that it's their breathing that's limiting their exercise capacity. But in uh, fact, it's actually, if you're healthy and your lungs are healthy, that's actually not really true. The The limiting factor for what we call VO2 max, which is the, the maximum amount of oxygen your body can use um, during exercise is actually your circulatory system. It's the ability of your heart and your circulatory system to get the oxygen to you, the cells and your muscles that's actually the limiting factor rather than your ability to breathe. So, because we have wow. a lot of excess capacity um, for breathing. Yeah. And, and in fact, we have so much excess capacity for breathing that, that that's, like I said, if you're healthy mm-hmm. and your lungs are functioning properly, that that's actually not the limiting factor. That's a really interesting insight because I do think maybe there's this perception that in order to perform better, we need to learn how to breathe better or train ourselves to breathe better. But it sounds like you're you're suggesting it's a different it's a different mechanism or a different like adaptation that helps improve performance. Like how um, how efficiently our circulatory system can deliver oxygen to the cells seems like that's that's more what matters. And the breathing is just yeah. kind of like second to that or something. Yeah, and there's also there's adaptations in your muscle cells as well that enable them to kind of use energy, you know, produce energy more efficiently. So there's lots of, lots of kind of changes that happen with training, but, um, but yeah, but it's actually not your, it's not your breathing. That's the limiting factor. You know, it it often doesn't feel like that. Right. Cause you feel like out of breath or, you know, like you have to stop because of that. So I could see why we might then think like, I just need to work on my, my breathing capacity or something like that. Yeah. You know, we normally, if you're just sitting around breathing kind of quietly, like, you know, we're Mm -hmm. having a conversation. So we're just sitting in a chair and we're not really doing anything particularly strenuous. Our bodies don't need a lot of oxygen and therefore our breath will tend to be fairly um, quiet. And and we're actually not bringing in a whole lot of air into the lungs with each breath. So it's said typically in a, a resting breath, you would bring out about a half a liter of air into your lungs or 500 mm-hmm. milliliters. Um, but total lung capacity is much larger than that. So it's it's said to be six liters is kind of what we, we envision as the, the standard, standard capacity of the lung. Depends on how big you are, bigger person or right. bigger lung, smaller person, smaller. But um, so you're only taking in, you know, half a liter with each breath, but but total lung capacity is six liters. You have a lot of excess capacity available to you. And right. so I, I sometimes hear, you know, teachers say things like, oh, we only use 10% of our lungs or, or this kind of mm-hmm. thing, and, and we should be using more of the lungs. But if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense, right? Like 
we, we, it's a good thing that we have that excess capacity because if we do want to exercise mm -hmm. really vigorously, we have the ability to get a lot more air into our lungs and, right. uh, you know, in and out and, and get more oxygen to our, um, to our tissues when we need that. But, um, uh, but so anyway, so the fact that we are, we're not kind of breathing fully and deeply all the time is actually a good thing. It just means that we have, we have excess capacity that's available to us when we do need it. That's a really helpful reminder. And I know you actually have uh, a YouTube video about this that we can link in the show notes. I, I think it's it's about this topic, but about just that idea that like in a yoga class, for example, um, that breathing deeply is uh, super important. And that, you know, like like you said, some of these claims about we don't we don't use our our the full capacity of our lungs on a regular basis. And that's like a negative thing. And so we should teach ourselves to inhale the full volume of our lungs, like while we're in yoga or these kind of constant reminders. Sometimes you hear in a yoga class to continually be taking these full, like expansive breaths. Um, and that you, in your YouTube video, you explain that it seems like the motivation behind some of that emphasis in a yoga class is about, is about like um, bringing more oxygen into the bloodstream. Like, the idea is that if we inhale more oxygen, like a greater or a greater volume of air, we will bring more oxygen into the bloodstream. But you explain in your video that that's not quite how it works. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. If you've been appreciating the work we put into this podcast to help uplift and empower our community with better information, science-based thinking, and solid education about the body and movement, consider becoming a supporter of our show to help our message grow even further. You can support our work with this podcast starting at just $3 a month, and you can cancel any time, of course. The link to become a supporter is in the show notes. Just look for the text, become a supporter of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We truly appreciate your support for the work that we do with this podcast and the educational resource that it is for our yoga community. And now back to our episode. The idea is that if we inhale more oxygen, like a greater or a greater volume of air, we will bring more oxygen into the bloodstream. But you explain in your video that that's not quite how it works. Yeah. So um, <laughs> even if you're just breathing, you're sitting around and you're breathing quietly and you're breathing in, you know, whatever, half a liter of air per minute. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I mean, excuse me, half a liter <laughs> of air per breath, not per minute, but yeah. half a liter of air per breath. Um the blood that is circulating through your lungs becomes fully oxygenated. Um, and the reason for that is that, that oxygen is carried in your bloodstream in uh, a molecule that's called hemoglobin mm -hmm. that makes up your red blood cells. And uh, hemoglobin is a really interesting molecule. Uh, when there's oxygen around, um, hemoglobin loves oxygen and it'll suck up as much of it as it possibly can. Um, so we say that it has a very high affinity for oxygen. So as the blood is passing over the tiny little air sacs in your lungs, which are called alveoli, which is where that gas exchange takes place, the hemoglobin is like, it's just very greedy for oxygen. It'll, it'll grab as much as it possibly can so that you're, what we call your oxygen saturation level or mm -hmm, O2 mm -hmm. saturation 
is pretty close to 100%. Um, it's somewhere between 95 and you know 99% pretty much all the time, um, just because of the fact that hemoglobin has this strong affinity for oxygen. And then what's actually kind of cool about hemoglobin is that when the blood circulates around your cells, particularly cells that have used a lot of oxygen and need it, hemoglobin becomes very generous and it's like, <laughs> just starts to give it all away um, because it, the, it's a protein that can kind of change its shape to either glom onto uh-huh. oxygen or let it go, depending upon what's necessary in, in the environment that it finds itself in. So, um, so the, anyway, the point is that your blood will be pretty much fully saturated with oxygen um, under normal circumstances, assuming that you're healthy. Right. Um, and, and breathing more. There have been a few studies that have looked at kind of the effect of deep breathing on oxygen saturation, kind of certain yoga breathing techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be a, like a very, very slight change in oxygen saturation. But if you're looking mm-hmm. at people, if you're studying people who are, who are normal, who are healthy, their oxygen saturation levels are normal before they start the pranayama practice or before <laughs> they start the breathing practice. And if there's any increase, it's very small and still within normal range. So, so my, my feeling is like, is, you know, like you could, you could find some studies that might kind of see, oh, there's a very, very slight increase in this oxygen saturation, but but is that actually meaningful? Probably not. Right. right. If your blood is already fully saturated, if your hemoglobin is already fully saturated or saturated to a normal level, is changing that by 1% going to make a difference? Probably not. No. Um, that makes, yeah, like on a practical level, like maybe yeah. numbers wise, there's like a little bit more, but does that really? Yeah, right. Or, or, you know, or there's a, there can be a difference between what we call statistical significance, which just means is a measure of kind of the, the, the probability of something happening by chance and, you know, in the results of a study, there's a difference between that and, and being actually meaningful and important yeah. in terms of, kind of long-term effects on our health. And yes. um, that makes a lot. Of, we talked about that a little bit, Travis, do you remember in our last episode on nasal versus mouth breathing mm-hmm. and like that difference between, yeah, like there could be some, some benefits to nasal breathing, but uh, like statistically significant wise, but on a practical level day to day, um, you know, what, like, what's the magnitude of the effect? Like, do we, do we know? Like, those are kind of two different things. It's something significant. And then how much of an effect does it actually have? Right. So in this case, if your oxygen saturation is normal and it goes up right. a little bit, it's still normal. It doesn't <laughs> matter. No, not really. Uh, now that's not to say that, you know, there aren't people who have, you know, uh, various disease conditions or, you know, that right. may, may right. in fact not have, of normal oxygen levels. I guess I should probably also say that just even though we, if I, when we talk about oxygen saturation, which by the way, that's, if you go to the doctor and they put the little thing in your finger, um, yeah. the clip on your finger, that's measuring your oxygen saturation. Um, oh, and cool. uh, so you could have normal oxygen saturation, but if you're anemic or something like that, you might still have low oxygen levels. But again, is breathing more going to change that? Well, no, because the anemia right. has to do with the amount of hemoglobin that you have, uh, you know, or the or the ability of the hemoglobin to work properly. That makes sense. So it's oh, like a different yeah. mechanism, mechanism yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, and, and then, you know, if you're like, let's say if you're exercising, like we were talking about before and you need more oxygen, yes, right. you will breathe, you will breathe more quickly and you'll breathe more deeply um, because you have a greater demand for oxygen. Um, but, but, but that's, but that's actually not changing the saturation level of the hemoglobin. Oh, is it just making the blood circulate more quickly? It's just basically circulating the blood more quickly. Right. So that there's more, there's more hemoglobin passing through your lungs more quickly. And therefore it to takes pick up more, more oxygen, oxygen. To, to take more oxygen to your cells. Um, but, but the, but just the breathing in and of it's, you know, changing mm. your breathing and breathing more deeply is not likely to really have much of a, a, a important or meaningful effect. That makes so much sense. Thank you for explaining that. And like I said, we'll link in the show notes, your excellent YouTube video. I think it's only like nine or 10 minutes long, but that kind of really in a, in a really nice way explains all of that too. Um, yeah. There may be other benefits to, right. to pranayama practices that don't necessarily have to do with changing oxygen yes. saturation um, and right. in particular kind of changes you know, um, there can be an effect on the autonomic nervous system. Yes. Um, and, um, and so I think most of us have the experience that changing how we breathe can affect our state of mind and kind of shift us towards perhaps a more kind of calm, relaxed state. So I think that's For really sure. where a lot of the, the benefits of these breathing practices come from, not so much getting oxygen more oxygen. That makes so much sense. And actually, I, um, I'm sure we're going to ask you to elaborate on what you just said in a little bit about pranayama practices and like potentially their effect on more the autonomic nervous system side versus like oxygen saturation. Uh, but just one quick question I wanted to ask to kind of tack on to this, the like your YouTube video and what you explained about the deep breathing was something else you mentioned in that video that I know I've heard as well um, is that, yes, sometimes there's the claim that breathing deeply in yoga is important to deliver more oxygen, like bring more oxygen into the bloodstream. And you've said that that's not really the case. But another reason sometimes people teach that is because there's an idea that that there's like stale or stagnant air in the lungs. This is just an idea that like I feel like is out there sometimes. And if you don't breathe deeply, you won't kind of cleanse that stagnant air out. And that somehow that stagnant there is not good for us and a deep breath will clear that out. But you talk about that in the YouTube video. What's up with like the, the idea of stagnant air in the lungs and a deep breath? So you never empty all of the air out of your lungs. Um, there's even, even with the biggest exhalation that you could possibly make, there will still be some air left in your lungs, which is called the residual volume. And that's mm -hmm. actually important. And we want to have that there. Um, so, so yeah, so there's always some air in your lungs already when you breathe in, I, I don't, I wouldn't term it stagnant air, um, <laughs> it's, but it's just, it's just the fact that your lungs don't, uh, empty completely and having that residual volume is actually important because so in the, in the atmosphere around us, there's a percentage of oxygen is about 21. The air is about 21% oxygen. When air gets into your lungs, because the internal environment of your lungs is a little bit different than the air outside, because you have that residual volume, there's always air in your lungs that new air is being mixed with. Mm -hmm. um, the air in your lungs has a much higher percentage of water vapor. So it's much more humidified, which is important because we need the air to be humidified in order for the, you know, to kind of 
because your lungs are kind of delicate tissue. So, you know, we, we need a certain like a level of humidity in there. We don't want to dry them out too much. Um, yeah. And there's also a, a relatively higher level of carbon dioxide um, in your lungs than there would be in the atmosphere outside. Those things are important uh, in terms of kind of the ability of oxygen and carbon dioxide to, to diffuse between the bloodstream and the air and between the air and the bloodstream. Oh. So, um, so the, without going into the, the chemistry of it, there's, there's um, a certain kind of percentage of oxygen in your lungs that would determine what we call the partial pressure of oxygen. And then there's a certain amount of oxygen in your blood that's flowing through your, your capillaries around your alveoli in your lungs that has a certain partial pressure. And it's the pressure differential between those that causes the flow of oxygen one way, flow of carbon dioxide okay. the other direction. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's actually, in, it's actually necessary for the correct functioning of your lungs that you have a slightly different gas composition in your lungs than in the atmosphere outside. Um, so, so yeah. I wouldn't, so I, and yeah, I, I, I mean, you could think, well, okay, so I've got like this extra carbon dioxide in my lungs and extra water vapor in my lungs and, you know, but, but, but I wouldn't think of it as like stagnant air. Um, it's actually right. important for, for the, for the gas exchange to work properly, that we have those kind of, that kind of residual volume in the lungs. Anyway, sorry, maybe that was a little bit too much. I no, loved was, it. A little yeah. too much kind of chemical uh, chemistry in there, but. It's um, just funny because, yeah. you know, people think, oh, the stale, stagnant air, I need to take a deeper breath and a more full exhalation mm -hmm. to get new air. And it's like, well, your the premise is faulty and the, right. the actual physiological explanation for why that air is there is nuanced and important from, yeah. from a functional standpoint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I guess just in terms of like you were saying toward the beginning, Joe, about how learning more about physiology and about how the body works really helps give us a more accurate and clear picture of what's going on and sensing of ourselves. So, so that maybe, I don't know, I just feel like I hear often in a, in a yoga class or also just some other breathing practice context, but like exhale all of your breath out. Like sometimes that'll be a command, like take a full exhale. Sometimes it's take an exhale until you get to the end and then exhale a little bit further, you know, just like to get all the air out. But I guess it's just interesting to note that you're never really going to exhale all. I mean, maybe it's a helpful visual or a vision or imagery to say that, but it's not really accurate because you never truly exhale and you wouldn't really want to exhale all your air out. It's it's wrong, but it, like you said, it's a nice, yeah, it's a nice image. And there's, yeah. there are psychological implications, right? Or nervous system implications from doing that exercise, even if it's not physiologically what's happening, but it yeah. maybe it is nice to know, you know, that that's, oh, that's what I'm saying is not actually reflective of the true physiological process of I'm not actually getting all the air out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I do try when I'm teaching to, to phrase my instructions or to phrase, in, you know, in ways that are aligned with the anatomical reality. But at the same time, like when I'm, if I'm teaching a class, I'm not teaching a physiology class, I'm teaching a yoga yes. class. Yes. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say, okay, breathe out until you hit your residual volume. Because nobody <laughs> will have any idea what I'm talking about. Um, you know, so I think it's fine to say something along those lines, but I do try to say it as breathe out as much air as you can. 
right rather than saying breathe all the air out so Ooh. i think so i think one is accurate the other is not but they both but i think if i say breathe all breathe as much as air out as you can yeah then, then that is still conveying the kind of the intention then the intention yeah yeah that's um, a, and that's a subtle distinction too yeah and i think like you know it's you it's great to use imagery and i i think it's I think it's really valuable to use imagery when you're teaching. But again, I do try to phrase it in a way where either make it clear that it's an image, like imagine right. this is happening, right. um, or uh, or phrase it in such a way that I feel like it's still aligned with the um, yeah, the, the reality uh, the real the reality of like what's actually happening physiologically. Yeah. In in a case like this, maybe the implications aren't so wide reaching, right? Like, it does it matter how much it doesn't matter much if a person leaves the class thinking they exhaled all the air versus all the air that they could. But I, I think it speaks to many other instances where if we can try to say the more scientifically accurate, um, whatever it is, without changing what we would do, then we should mm -hmm. try to err on that side because maybe there would be some instances where it could create uh a belief that's inaccurate and potentially, yeah, like perpetuating misunderstandings that could have practical significance. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just about kind of being careful with your language and and thinking, okay, how can I phrase something in such a way that that it's that a normal person can understand it, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, like it's not like you know, not throwing out a lot of big partial pressures, fancy, a big fancy words. Uh, yeah, you know, that are not necessary. But like, yeah, right. But just can you say it in a way that a normal person can understand what you're talking about? Um, but at the same time, can you say it in a way that still respects the the anatomical and physiological reality behind what you're what you're talking about? That makes a lot of sense to me. And um, yeah, that the more that we study and learn, the more we can try to make that an intention. So that if if we try to make that our default, then like across the board, we can start to be a little more intentional with what we're cueing and how we're cueing. Yeah. You know, an, another example might be, uh, you know, somebody might say, breathe into your belly. And, oh, and I, yeah. I, and, and I, actually, sometimes I'll say that, but, yeah. but I don't say, I don't say, move the air into your belly. Yes. And I do sometimes people say something like, okay, breathe the air into your belly. Well, that's not accurate. The breathe, the air is going into your lungs. You are, yeah. you can feel movement in your belly because of, well, because as your diaphragm contracts, and pulls downward, it's pushing down on the top of your abdomen. It's mm -hmm. pushing down on your abdominal organs and it's kind of pushing them out of the way. So you'll, you might feel your belly kind of moving out what we would call an, an abdominal or belly breath. Yeah. Um, so, so I actually do sometimes say, you know, I'll say something like, you know, breathe into your belly because I think breathing is maybe a little bit more mm -hmm. expansive term than just then, but, but I wouldn't say something like take the air into your belly. I usually try to say something like, as you inhale, can you feel your belly moving? Yeah, that's right. accurate. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Put, put your hands on your belly and feel as you breathe in, yeah. if you relax your abdominal muscles, do you feel any movement there? Um, and so making it more of a kind of an inquiry for one thing, but, but also staying within what is accurate. Absolutely. On the topic of belly breathing, this was actually something that we wanted to ask you about, like, because when you breathe, um, I guess if we're going to kind of talk about the realm in which we're taking conscious control of our breath, because as you've explained, 
normally on a day-to-day level, the breath is just kind of in the background and unconscious, but there are times when we can consciously, um, we can affect the breath or kind of take control of it. Um, some in a somatic sense, like, especially in like a yoga practice. And sometimes we will, uh, sometimes we'll teach something like, like belly breathing or like quote, breathe into the belly. And, um, I guess I'm wondering, what you would see what's what would you see as the main effect of something like uh having someone shift their breath so that it's moving the belly versus breathing specifically so that it maybe moves the rib cage and people you can also breathe so that it moves the upper chest like they're kind of i find these three areas that that we're often kind of led to direct our breath to or to control the breath around um like what do you see the value or the or the effect on the body or the physiological effect of, of taking control of the breath and then moving it in different parts like that, like those, those three parts, really. Sometimes people talk about a, a diaphragmatic breath. And, and when they use that term, oftentimes what they're referring to is a breath where you feel that movement of your belly. Yes. So you breathe in and the, the roof of the dome of the diaphragm gets pulled downward and it kind of pushes out on the belly as you, as you inhale. Um, and then, and then of course the diaphragm relaxes as you exhale and rises back up and the air flows out and then your belly kind of comes back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so people often refer to that as a diaphragmatic breath. Your, your diaphragm does attach to your rib cage. Um, it has, it, it has a origin all the way around the inside of your rib cage and, and on your, uh, on the front of your lumbar spine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if your diaphragm is contracting and the roof of the dome can't get pulled downward, the muscle fibers of the diaphragm can also lift your ribs. So, uh, so you could have a breath that where there is more thoracic movement, where there's mm-hmm. more rib cage movement, particularly in the lower part of your rib cage, which mm-hmm. would tend to create a more kind of lateral movement or, or outward side to side movement of your ribs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can still be a diaphragmatic breath. Uh, I love how you point that out. That could be, yeah. And in fact, as long as, as long as you're not, your diaphragm is not paralyzed, your diaphragm is working when you're breathing in. Your (laughs) diaphragm will contract. Yeah, it's contracting when you're breathing in because that's the primary muscle that we use for breathing. Yes. Um, So, so it's not as if you could breathe in a way where your diaphragm is, is, is not contracting. Yes. But, um, but you can breathe in a way where you might be creating some resistance to the movement of your diaphragm. Right. So in other words, so in other words, like, let's say if you're breathing in a way where you're, you're engaging your pelvic floor or as we say in yoga, kind of engaging Mula Bandha yeah. or uh, some engagement of the abdominal muscles, then as the roof of the dome of the diaphragm gets pulled downward, it's essentially meeting with some resistance yes. because you've kind of increased the pressure within the abdomen and it can't pull down as easily. Yeah. So typically what will happen in that case is that the lower ribs will lift and you create a more kind of thoracic breath. Um, but it's also possible that you could be breathing in, or, or you could be like, let's say, contracting your abdominal wall muscles so much that they're pulling your ribs down and you're preventing oh, your ribs from moving, yes. you know, the lower ribs from moving much. You can still get some movement in the upper part of your rib cage by using other muscles, like certain neck muscles and shoulder muscles mm-hmm. that attach to your ribs, your intercostal muscles the muscles between the ribs. So you have other muscles you can help, you can use to kind of, you know, help to create that expansion. But your diaphragm is the most efficient and effective muscle for doing most of the work of breathing. Um, it's not 
you know, is not the only muscle. And, and even in quiet breathing, you do have uh, your intercostal muscles and other neck muscles called your scalenes are working. Mm -hmm. But you want the diaphragm to be doing kind of most of the work. So if you're in, if you're contracting your abdominal wall so much and you're contracting your pelvic floor so much and you're squeezing everything in, <laughs> um, you know, while you're trying to breathe in, you're making it harder for your diaphragm to do its job. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that right. you're not going to be able to breathe because you have other muscles that can help out. Um, but you're, you're kind of a little bit getting in the way of the diaphragm. And, and I would say that a lot of people will tend to have certain habits around kind of holding excessive or unnecessary muscular tension or, you know, I don't know, like, you know, you were taught mm -hmm. to kind of suck your belly in and hold it in. And, yeah. you know, and, and these, these things can affect the ability of your diaphragm to move freely. So, um, so I think the benefit of a, what we call belly breathing mm -hmm. is that it's, it's teaching you kind of how to let go of some of that unnecessary work to allow your diaphragm to do its job a little bit more efficiently. Um, generally speaking, that's going to be a very effective kind of breath. If you're lying on your back, if you're in Shavasana mm -hmm. or you're doing, you know, something where there's not a lot of demand on your, your postural muscles to support you. Right. Um, so, um, so it's fine to let your belly move kind of very freely when you're lying down on your back because you don't have to hold yourself upright. Your abdominal right. muscles don't really need to be doing anything. And it's, I think it's really helpful for us to learn how to let go of that, uh, to let the, the diaphragm move more freely. But there are also times when you actually need to use your abdominal muscles, um, right? They're there, right. they're there to do a job. Uh, and, um, and part of their job is postural support. And of course, also moving your spine. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so there are many times where you're in a position where you're placing more demand on your abdominal wall muscles or your pelvic floor muscles or various other muscles, um, we still want to be able to breathe in a way where we can breathe freely. And so it's good that we have this ability to use kind of other muscles to help us to um, access kind of other, other possibilities for movement. Um, because so for me, I feel like what is most important for me is that your breathing should be adaptable. Your breathing yeah. should be, it should be able to adapt to what you're doing in the moment to meet your body's physiological demands for oxygen and to get rid of carbon dioxide. And so if we have lots of different options that are available to us for breathing, um, lots of possibilities for breathing, that just means that the whole system is more adaptable. Um, and so, you know, it means that, like you could put yourself in some crazy pose, like, you know, I don't know. So, you know, you know, Supta Kamasana or something where you put your legs behind your head. That reminds me of that, like that's universally true from a movement standpoint too. Like we want to have more movement options so that we can do things in multiple ways. So it, it, it kind of mirrors that idea that of, we call it like movement variability. We can do a squat in many different ways or many different stances or uh, with different types of load placements. Uh, and like you said, we can breathe in different ways depending on what the situation kind of dictates. So yeah, if we're upside down or inverted or our legs are behind our head and the, the different muscles are, are needing to work, we can still find ways to breathe. So we yeah. 
maintain yeah. that important physiological function. Yeah. And so to me, that's kind of the main, I think the main benefit of practicing those, you know, those diff, exploring breath in those different realms that you were talking about, Jenny, of yeah. you know, feeling movement of the belly, the lower ribs, the upper chest. Is yeah. it, it's, it's not so much that like that we want to train ourselves to breathe in one particular way, but just we want to have that ability for our breath to respond so that we're always able to breathe and no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Totally. It sounds like it can help us keep our options open or like to yeah, exactly. connect on that conscious level. It sounds like uh, similar to the Feldenkrais practice that you teach, which is like a form of, or a movement system that um, in my impression, it's like a somatics based system where one of the main intentions, again, in my impression, is that is that we're um, kind of in, increasing our movement options by like showing yourself or showing your nervous system kind of these new and different ways that you might connect to and move various areas of the body done in these really gentle, low load ways, but just uh, by consciously connecting that way, it seems like the philosophy might be that you increase um, your movement options. And maybe it's like a similar idea with breathing like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And in fact, Moshe Feldenkrais actually did some some interesting uh, Feldenkrais lessons where he was exploring what's called paradoxical breathing, which is um, which would be a breath that's kind of the opposite of what we were talking about with the abdominal breath of you know. So when you inhale, the the ribs expanding and the belly being drawn in, and then the belly oh, moving yeah. out when you exhale. So he he actually did some some uh awareness through movement lessons where he was exploring kind of that style of breathing so so yeah that's very definitely kind of part of that method of of introducing different options and then and then trusting that your nervous system is intelligent enough to figure out what's the appropriate option um for you to take in any particular moment um to respond to whatever the the situation is that you find yourself in that makes so much sense um and that really that really resonates for me thanks for explaining that um, another question that we wanted to ask you today, just kind of along all these lines, uh, and when thinking about things like controlling the breath, is for many yoga practitioners and in many yoga classes, like there's a default form of breathing that we do on the yoga mat, which is ujjayi breathing. And uh, in my mind, ujjayi breath, it's a form of pranayama, but it's a little different from like sitting down and doing a specific pranayama technique like alternate nostril breathing or uh, use three-part breath. There's sometimes you can sit down and just focus temporarily on a, on a breathing exercise. But ujjayi is more kind of like it's often treated as a default style of breath that we just always use throughout like either completely all of our asana practice or the majority of our asana practice. And could you tell us a little about, about like what ujjayi breathing is, uh, maybe even anatomically, like with the constriction of the contraction of throat muscles, but also how that may affect things physiologically, um, like what the effects of ujjayi might be or the reason that we might do it or, or maybe not do it. Uh, sure. So fundamentally, I see ujjayi as a way of slowing your breathing down. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the way that you do that is by creating a narrower space for the air to flow through. So yes. your, um, your voice box or your larynx um, yeah, is located kind of just below your throat. Um, like above your, your trachea, which is the tube that takes the air to your lungs. Uh, and in your larynx, you have um, what are called vocal folds, these sort of little flaps that can kind of come together or open uh, to either close off the flow of air or open up to allow the air flow of air. 
um, when you're speaking, when you're talking, you're actually bringing the vocal folds together and you're kind of pushing air up through them and it's causing them to vibrate and that's what produces sound. So that's, that's how we so talk. Cool. Um, and we can kind of change the shape of the, the space, which is called the glottis. So the space is the glottis is the space in the larynx. We can change the shape of that depending on whether we're breathing in or talking or doing different things. Um, if we're whispering, Mm -hmm. uh, there's some cartilages in the larynx that kind of rotate in such a way that they bring the vocal folds together to close off the front part, but to create a small opening in the back. So we create a kind of narrow opening for the air to flow through. So almost as if you're sort of breathing through a straw. Right. Um, so right. Because, and, and so by breathing through a narrower opening, you are slowing your breathing down. Um, you're probably also creating a little bit of resistance to your mm -hmm. diaphragm and your respiratory muscles. So mm -hmm. it may be, you know, kind of helping to sort of uh, work those muscles a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you, and you're making a sound. So it's like a, right. sometimes people talk about it as a kind of a whispered ha sound. Mm -hmm. Some people describe it as Darth Vader breath. Personally, yeah. I do not like Darth Vader breath. I don't, I don't use that image <laughs> at all. You don't teach that. <laughs> um, uh, because, I, because first of all, I don't think like, well, is that really what we're trying to become? But, but, um, <laughs> but also... Um, there is some at least sort of possibility of if you whisper a lot that you could be kind of creating increasing the tension in your in your vocal folds and so oftentimes like you know doctors will will suggest especially if you have something like laryngitis like don't whisper because the whispering you know might tend to kind of irritate the um the vocal folds a little bit um so i don't like the idea of making it like a very loud Mm -hmm. um, harsh mm -hmm. kind of sound, a sort of Darth Vader sound. Uh, personally, I, I like doing Ujjayi. Um, I, I don't always practice it. Mm -hmm. And I, I must say, I, I don't teach it as much as I used to. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I don't, I particularly don't teach it as this is our default breathing mode. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I have to say when I, when I practiced Ashanga a lot, um, I would find myself just doing, you know, I'd be riding the subway and I'd be doing Ujjayi and, you know, and I, one time, one time I went to the dentist and, and I was like doing Ujjayi and, and I was like, what are you doing? You're a nut. Like, why are you doing Ujjayi? And I realized that there it was just because like, I was kind of, I was the dentist and I was stressed out. Yes. Um, but, but That's I do so think funny. that, but I do think that people, uh, it can become habitual and it become, it can become something that we become kind of locked into in our asana practice. And, and going back to what we were talking about with movement variability and breathing variability, I think yeah. like any, any time we develop kind of some habit that we can't let go of, that's a good thing for us to look at and start to say, do we have other options available to us? So, um, yeah. so I, don't, I don't teach it as a default. Mm -hmm. I do think it can be helpful in some circumstances. It does, obviously, because you're making a sound, it helps to bring your attention to your breathing. Yeah. Um, it can help to slow your breathing down. It may also help you because you're moving the air through a narrower space, may help you to regulate the, the pressure within your abdomen and your chest cavity as you breathe in and out to be able to kind of regulate those pressure changes to perhaps, you know, maintain spinal support. Um, so there, there may mm -hmm. be reasons why it would be helpful in some circumstances. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really teach it as a default that one should immediately start doing Ujjayi as soon as class starts and then you know, <laughs> carry it through the whole practice. 
thank you for explaining your approach to that makes so much sense. Um, and yeah, in our in our last episode, Travis, when we were talking about nasal breathing, we were we were talking about how breathing through the nose in the context of like a pranayama practice will inherently slow the breath down compared to breathing through the mouth just because it's like smaller airways. So I was kind of tuned into that difference, but it makes a lot of sense, Joe, that when you ujjayi breathe, that's that's narrowing it even further, like creating like more like a even smaller airway because through the nose and then um, a smaller airway through the throat as well. So it's kind of adding on to even slowing the breath down further. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, but that makes sense. I yeah. remember um, I used to practice Ashtanga like really dedicatedly for like eight years, several, several years ago. But I remember um, and I'm not saying this in any negative way, but like we would be taught to breathe Ujjayi, of course, Ujjayi all the, all the time, but also loudly enough that we should like you should be able to hear your the person next to you's breath. Like that was yeah. kind of the teaching, like you're supposed to breathe so loud that not only you hear your own breath, but like someone next to you could hear your breath. Um, yeah. So that's like an interesting approach. Yeah. I don't really like to teach it that way. I, I if, if I teach it, I teach it more like you can hear it, but <laughs> like, yeah. like it may be, you know, it'd be, it'd be audible enough that you can hear it. So it can help you to keep your attention on your breathing, but the whole class doesn't need to hear it. Um, because I, I think there is some, at least some possibility of, you know, that could create some irritation to the throat. Yeah, I think like overdoing it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, another question that we wanted to ask you about breathing and specifically kind of in the yoga context, and I think we've you've touched on this a bit already as we've been talking, but another kind of common refrain that we tend to find in, in the yoga setting is, uh, is uh, yoga teachers like reminding students to breathe, you know, like remember to breathe or please breathe. I see that one quite a bit too. So kind of like these conscious reminders or you're, you're practicing and the teacher will be like, check in, like, are you breathing right now? And I'm sure that there are like positive reasons to do that, but I also have some questions about that. And I'm wondering what you think, like, is there value? What is the value in reminding yoga students to breathe during their practice? Well, so going back to our earlier discussion about how breathing is controlled, um, you know, if, if you're if you're thinking that you need to be reminded to breathe in, and if you don't, that you're going to stop breathing and drop dead, like that's not going to happen, right? So we don't, we don't need Thanks to remind people. Like, people. like people will breathe, right? right. Um, that's a good reassurance. So, reassuring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People, people are going to breathe. They'll, you know, they 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 manage to live this long to make it into your yoga class. So they'll 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 probably be okay in terms of <laughs> uh, in terms of that. Um, but I do think that there can be, it can be helpful to bring attention mm -hmm. to the breath, um, to make the breath an, an object of awareness yes. uh, and focus. Um, and that's really, you know, very fundamental to yoga practice. So I think there can be some value in it from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. Also, so going back also to what I was saying about getting in the way of the diaphragm and making it a little bit harder for it to do its job. You know, sometimes when we're, we're in a situation where we, we feel a little bit unsure of ourselves or, or we're, or trying to move in a particular way that, you know, maybe we're not accustomed to, or we're not really sure we know how to do. Uh, I think it's very common for people to kind of to hold their breath in that moment. I certainly yeah. find myself doing that. I'm trying to do something like really difficult. And then, and then it's like, I don't really know how to do it. So I'm just going to hold my breath. <laughs> um, you know, or sometimes even in a, a balancing pose. I mean, it could just be even something right. as simple as like 
you know, being in tree pose, it's like, I don't want to lose my balance. So I'm going to hold my breath. Yeah. Hold everything. Um, and, yeah. and so I think it's useful to bring your attention to those places where you might be doing that. Um, because I think there's often a lot to be learned in those moments when you find that you've stopped breathing yeah, because it often will kind of reveal places where there's some, you don't have some clarity about how you're moving or so, right. so I think it can be helpful for that. And, and it, you know, sometimes people will have a sort of a strategy for creating stability mm-hmm. that in their body that involves like a lot of, you know, kind of muscular effort and holding in the abdomen and, and, yeah. and sometimes holding the breath can be part of that, um, part of that as well. Um, so I think, you know, it, and there might be times when it's useful to hold your breath. So for instance, if you're, you know, if you're doing weight training or you're, you know, you're doing yeah. like a very, a very heavy deadlift or something like that, you know, you're trying to lift up, you know, 200 pounds up off the floor. Um, it might be useful for you to actually to hold your breath in that moment because, because you're able to then kind of use the the pressure within your abdomen to stabilize your spine. Right. And I think most of us will tend to kind of do that intuitively when we, when we find ourselves in those situations where we sense, oh, there's a lot of demand being placed on my body. Mm-hmm. And we kind of intuitively will notice or hold our breath while mm-hmm. we're doing that. In general, in yoga practice, I don't, we're not usually placing that level of demand on the body. Um, yeah. It's just like the loads are not that large. Um, the, you know, the stresses that we're, we're working with are usually not that large. And generally speaking, like, you know, we, we can usually probably find a way to continue to breathe through most of the things we're doing in yoga practice. We don't need to hold our breath or kind of, or to sort of brace ourselves or, um, you know, kind of immobilize ourselves. So I think, again, it can be useful to notice if you're doing that. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that. That, that, that sheds a really great perspective on it. Like that it could be a form of like self-inquiry or self-observation to notice when you're doing that. And um, to the extent that we may or may not think to tune into that on our own, it can be helpful to have a yoga teacher pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, I might bring your attention to what's happening in your feet or your fingers or, you know, or your eyebrows or, I mean, you know, so this is like one of the things we do as yoga teachers is we help to direct our students' attention um, into kind of pro to further that that uh, practice of self-inquiry, of self-discovery. And so I think that the breath can be really, really useful for that because obviously like the breath is a extremely important fundamental movement that we make um, as people. Definitely, definitely. Thanks for explaining that. Um, There was one more kind of big-ish question that we wanted to ask of you today, which is that, uh, you know, in the yoga world, it's very common that movements are often paired with a specific phase of breath. So for example, traditionally in yoga, like if you're going to start a sun salutation, you would inhale the arms up into Urdhva Hastasana, and then you exhale to fold forward into Uttanasana. And it's just, that's the pattern and the flow of the breath. Or another, I mean, I know we have tons of examples, but another example that comes to mind is we tend to be taught that like going, moving into a back bend or spinal extension, that's an inhale and moving into a forward bend or rounding the spine is an exhale. So we kind of just like learn and maybe adapt our practice around always pairing these certain movements with an inhale or an exhale. 
So I just wonder like what your take is on that. Do you, do you find it important? Do you find it helpful? Do you teach to pay? Are there positive reasons to do that? Are there some negative reasons to do that? Like what's your take on pairing? I, movements with I think, I think there, sorry, I think there can be, um, I think there can be positive reasons for doing that. Um, one is just going back to what we were talking about before is just, it's a way of focusing your attention on your breath. Um, yeah. and, um, and there certainly are, there are some, some movements or some shapes in the body that may be more conducive to either inhaling or exhaling. You know, if you, if you bend forward into a forward bend, as you inhale, you can kind of feel that it's a little bit more difficult to do that than if you're exhaling. So, yeah. and, and yeah. again, that's just because as you're inhaling, your diaphragm's pushing down on your abdomen, it's increasing the pressure in the abdomen. At the same time, you're bending forward and putting pressure on your yeah. abdomen. And, and therefore, so there's a little bit, you know, it might feel like, oh, this is a little more difficult for me to do that. Yeah. Um, likewise, if you're bringing your arms up overhead, as the arms lift up, there's muscles that attach from your shoulder girdle to your ribs that help to elevate your upper ribs. So that might, you know, help you to feel like you can inhale there. So I think there are certainly um, positions, movements that may link to the breath in in a natural way in that mm-hmm. way, and um, and so yeah, so I do I do teach those kinds of those kinds of movements of linking movement and breath. Uh, I also think that it can become a habit. It can become something that we can get locked into. And I think it's it's also useful to learn how to uh, to uncouple breath from movement, um, and so you know to and you can even explore the opposite thing, you know. Yeah, like, okay, well, what happens illegal. if you what happens if you exhale as you move into a backbend? And in fact, right. for me personally, I often find it's very helpful to exhale as I move into a backbend because you know you can kind of imagine that as you're inhaling, as you're expanding your rib cage, there's a in a sense. Maybe a little bit of a kind of stiffening of the rib cage that happens just because of the inflation of the lungs, and sometimes I find letting oh, air out yeah. actually allows for a little bit more movement in the more rib movement. cage. Yeah. Right. Plus, also it just helps me to kind of relax into it rather than you know <laughs> stressing in backbends, which I often do, um, or, or holding my breath. So, um, so I think that it can be useful to play around with those things and explore kind of different options. And the other thing is a lot of times you're holding poses. So you might stay in a forward bend for a few breaths. So, you know, does that mean that you can't inhale while you're in the forward (laughs) bend? You know, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to stay there very long. I always wondered about that. Like, okay, well, I'm starting with this, you know, it's an exhalation or whatever, but then aren't what, you know, I'm cued to do that. And then the cueing ends and then I'm like, so what do I, do I hold my breath <laughs> right. here? And like, I don't, but then I'm like, well, but why did I start with that one? If I was inevitably going to do the other and that maybe that particularly rings true with me with like cat cow, because there's that pairing. But mm-hmm. personally, I like to do an inhalation and an exhalation in, in each in position. Both. Like, like I'd like hold. to go s- slow. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, man, I really have to, either slow my breath down more than I want to or move faster than I want to, to pair the breath with the the movement. And that just never felt perfectly intuitive to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think obviously you, you know, you need to be able to both inhale and exhale in any position that you're holding because, um, because they're both important. You can't do one without the other. So, um, 
and I guess that gets back to that idea of thinking of, you know, uh, the importance of the uh, adaptability in our in our breathing. That we we want to be able to mm. breathe, no matter what position we're in. We want to be able to inhale. We want to be able to exhale, and we want to have the kind of the capacity to be able to do that. Um, so so I think it can be. I think it can definitely be useful to explore different options, reversing how you might be linking movement and breath or or just simply decoupling it all together. And I have, you know, I've done some practices sometimes where I'll 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 try to just completely decouple my breathing from from my movement and it's it's often really a, a challenging thing to do to yeah. like okay, can you can you do cat cow and not link movement and breath in any way? Like, you know, it's not, not right. just reversing it, but can you just, could you just inhale and exhale freely while doing this movement? Uh, and, you know, going back to the question you had about Feldenkrais is another uh, example there, because there's some Feldenkrais lessons where he'll ask you to do that, to, to kind of, to keep your breath moving in and out, but in a way where it's not linked to the movement, where you, can you, can you breathe more f- faster than your movement or slower than your movement? Um, and so I think all of that is really just increasing our, our, um, you know, our, our movement repertoire and our, yeah. our, you know, our ability to, um, you know, to be adaptable, which is, I think, ultimately what we want. I love that. Thank you for elaborating on that. And it just, to me, it sounds like in your response about the pairing of movement with breath, but also just in so much of what you presented today in general, it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like your position is often that there isn't necessarily like a right or a wrong in terms of breath and especially breath in yoga. Uh, but, but more like it's maybe how we approach and use the breath and we could maybe use the breath for like in an exploratory way, in a way that help may, uh, may help increase movement variability, give us more options and that all of that kind of contributes to this great bigger picture. Uh, but it's not necessarily like, you always need to breathe this one way or this one, this one strategy is correct. And this is incorrect. So like less binary and more like, like options and maybe just having more intention in how you teach the breath to try to facilitate that. Yeah. I would say that's, that's very well said. <laughs> well, th- thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that I, some that's just what I feel like I picked up from you and also have picked up from uh, how I've seen you teach in the classes that you teach in my yoga class library and, in some of your other content, like on your YouTube channel. I haven't been lucky enough to take a, a training with you, although I would love to, like, because I know you teach in yoga teacher trainings and I haven't been lucky enough to do that, mm-hmm. but I would really, I'd really like to learn even more from you, like in a more you know specific, dedicated way. But um, it's just very cool to me that I feel like after such in-depth study that you've done, you know, on the body, on movement, on uh, specifically physiology, that seems like that could just really support you in um in approaching something like the breath and i also believe just movement in general that i believe that you approach it in kind of a similar way like it's not about right wrong but like what can we what can we gain from this in this way today kind of well well joe thank you so much for just sharing all of all of these insights and answering our questions so thoroughly today i know that our audience is going to have learned a ton and will appreciate um, having learned from you and i wondered if you could just tell us we will put everything in the show notes as far as like where people can find you but could you tell people like where you would suggest that they go for learning more from you uh sure well um you can go to my website which is joemillerioga.com 
Um, I have an Instagram page. I've been, to be honest, a little bit delinquent about posting on Instagram um, recently, but uh, but you that's Joe Miller Yoga. Yeah, that's Joe Miller Yoga on Instagram. YouTube as well, right? Yeah, and you, yeah, I do actually have YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and I have uh, some uh, online anatomy trainings and actually a specific kind of you know introduction to the breath as well. If you want to, if you want to, you want to post it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. It was great to have you and just to really dive in into this um, this really important topic of the breath. Like it's it's a really meaty and integral topic for for yoga practitioners. So we really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. And that wraps up our look at the physiology of breathing. Remember that you can help support our work with this podcast to bring science-based education to our yoga and movement community by becoming a supporter of the show, starting at just $3 a month. Use the link in the show notes to become a supporter of ours if you find what we've been sharing to be of value. You can also support us by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program, or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.